And so really would hope that you all, that you all make the time to do that. Okay, y'all ready to go? All right, we're going to get into our Bible study. Um, I have a buddy of mine who I went to college with, and he made a statement that I'll never forget. He made this statement. He said, the Bible is the biggest stadium you could ever play in. And I thought about that for a while, and I got to thinking, in other words, this, if you want to use the terminology, this game that we're in, this, this, this life in Christ, it's, it's the biggest game there is. Uh, forget the Super Bowl and the World Series and all that stuff. This one matters eternally. There, there is no more serious endeavor, and the Bible is the place, it's the playing field on which everything in life is carried out. There's a pastor down in Florida who once said this, and when he said it, it confused me, but the more I live, the more it makes sense. He said, the closer you get to God, the closer you get to the devil. Now think about that for a second, because it sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? It seems like, obviously, God and the devil being polar opposites, the closer you get to God, the further you get from the devil. But when you understand that the closer you get to God, the more dangerous you become to the enemy. So he appears to, in your presence, in your life, to fight you more. If you're living your life in just carnal sin, the devil doesn't need to waste his time on you. You can't even get victory over your flesh. But the closer you get to God, the closer you'll find yourself getting to the devil. And this becomes a huge challenge. And that's what we want to talk about today. So we are studying the book of 2 Peter, and if you haven't opened your Bibles there, please do. And the series that we're doing is Spiritual Growth and Maturity, and we finished chapter number one. And chapter number one, if I was going to give a general um, thesis for chapter number one, I would call it the development of spiritual growth. And it really focused on verses five, six, and seven with those seven stages of spiritual growth as they were laid out, seven steps that come sequentially. And ultimately, it ends in chapter number one last week where we see the authority of God's word. And God's word is the thing that ultimately will guide us through all of the steps of walking with the Lord and continuing to grow. But chapter number two will have this theme, and that will be the hindrances to spiritual growth. Because if you get yourself on the path of growing in the Lord and continuing to grow more and more with him through his word, what you're going to find is you have an enemy. The closer you get to God, the closer you get to the devil. And that enemy is going to step in and he's going to try and stop your ability to continue to grow. So at the end of chapter number one, right, in verses 19, 20, and 21, the word of God, right, is given to us. It's our divine authority. And it's not to be of any private interpretation. We're to understand the context and how God gave it. And with that as our authority, man, we can continue to grow. But chapter number two begins, oddly, I think, with the word, but. There's a contrast. I mean, the chapter begins referring back to what we talked about in chapter number one. It says, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. You see, 
we learn how spiritual growth is developed and we learn the steps and the stages how God wants to work in our lives and we begin to take those steps. But there's going to be a hindrance. There's an enemy. There's somebody who wants to stop you from ever getting to that point. Now, I think you all understand that it is God's will and He desires for all men to be saved. Amen? God wants everybody to be saved. He loves everybody, and he wants you to be saved. And those of you that have responded to that, man, you know it experientially, but, but God makes it very clear he wants everybody to be saved. And in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, we saw that God wants every saved person to grow. Every one of us. He wants us all to grow. It's never okay to not grow. We're to grow in the Lord. Amen? So here's the big question. How do you grow? How do you grow? Well, we spent some time talking about that already. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 2 says that we're going to grow by the sincere milk of the Word. So when you have that attitude that you sincerely go to the Word of God to teach you, man, you are going to grow. And how are you going to grow? Well, we saw that already in chapter number 1, through the seven stages with God's Word as the authority in your life. And can I just point out to you, especially with the circumstances that many of us are going through in life right now, that that is easier said than done. Amen? It is easier to say God's words the authority than to actually put shoe leather to it and to make it a part of your daily walk. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 11, where it talks about Jesus Christ giving gifts unto the church. And it lists some specific gifts that he gives. And there you have them, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And they're given to the church, right, for the building up of the body of Christ, for the work of the ministry, right? We know that. And that passage goes on down to verse number 15. And in verse number 15, it says for us that we are to grow up unto him in all things, that we be no more children, that we don't be tossed to and fro anymore, with cunning craftiness, with the slight of men, with every wind of doctrine, that we would grow up in him. How? Because pastors and teachers are going to teach us the word of God, and they're going to help us to understand how we need to grow. So God intends for you to grow, and he's provided the means by which you can grow. So the next question has to come, how will the devil work to stop your growth? I mean, you know he's going to try, don't you? I mean, don't be ignorant of these things. We have an enemy. And since he cannot possibly, it is impossible for him to cause you to lose your salvation. A once truly obtained salvation is a new birth. You cannot possibly ever be unborn. Praise God for eternal security. Because he cannot get the victory in your life for you to lose what you've already received. What he will do is to keep you from growing so that you don't win other people to Jesus. He's already lost in you. You won. Praise God. But other people haven't yet, and they need to know. And they're going to know as we continue to grow and we continue to share with them, right? And so how is he going to do that? Well, he's going to do that by hindering your ability to interact with God through his holy word. That's false teaching. That's false doctrine. 
And that's what we see from the very first time the devil ever shows up in the Scripture in Genesis chapter 3, and the very first recorded words ever out of the devil's mouth where he says in verse number 1, Yea, hath God really said? And he questions God's word. And that is the realm in which he works. Satan's realm is religion. And religion, if you study it as a subject, is a subset of philosophy. Religion is a philosophy. And so God warns us in Colossians chapter 2 and in verse number 8 that we need to beware of philosophy. We need to beware of these things that are vain deceit. That no man would spoil you, that no man would make spoil, that he would not take advantage of you through the endless debates of philosophy. That's the world that the devil operates in. It's not in the bars and the sinfulness that is so obviously blatant in the world. That's the world. That's your flesh. But the devil operates in religion. The devil is a liar and he's a counterfeiter. And he's going to take the truth and he's going to change it just enough to get you off track. So you can't grow anymore. And that, my friends, is exactly what chapter number 2 of Second Peter is all about. We're going to take several weeks to walk through this. Because think about it. If the devil can successfully tell you a story that is not true and make you think that you're okay, well, it's over, right? You're not looking for any more truth. You think you found it. But what you found maybe isn't exactly accurate. So that's his most effective strategy. It says in verse number one, there were false prophets. Meaning in the past. Meaning like in the Old Testament. So I want to read with you a couple of passages just where we can see some false prophets and learn a couple of things. Turn back with me to Jeremiah chapter 14. And I'm going to read verses 13 to 15. Jeremiah 14, starting in verse 13. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say unto them, You shall not see the sword, neither shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. That's what the prophets are saying. Verse 14. Then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination, and the thing of naught, and the deceit of their heart. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that prophesy in my name, and I sent them not, yet they say, Sword and famine shall not be in this land. The Lord says this, By sword and famine shall those prophets be consumed. Look with me in Jeremiah chapter 23. I mean, we could give you endless examples. Jeremiah 23, starting in verse 16. What a great picture of what we see far too frequently all over the world today. Jeremiah 23, 16. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord, the real authority. They say still unto them that despise me, The Lord hath said... You shall have peace, 
And they say unto everyone that walketh after the imagination of his own heart, no evil shall come upon you. So one of the characteristics of these false prophets is they're positive thinkers. They're going to they're preach unto you a message that is always going to make you feel good and hear what you want to hear. They're not going to talk about judgment. They're not going to talk about sin. They're not going to talk about righteousness. They're not going to talk about the vengeance of God. You have to watch out for those guys. They're going to say peace, peace, when there is no peace. Oh, there's times for peace and blessing, thank God. There's also times for getting right with the Lord and being holy and righteous and repenting. That's what God wants. First righteousness, God says, and then peace. That's how it works. Glance down to verse 21, Jeremiah 23. I have not sent these prophets, God said, yet they ran. I've not spoken unto them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel... Man, if they just listened to me, God says, and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. God wanted to use the prophets, using his word to proclaim the truth so God's people would turn from their evil ways and get right with him. But these prophets wouldn't do it. There were false prophets. Glance down to verse 25. It continues. I've heard what the prophet said that prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, uh, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams, which they tell every man to his neighbor as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. Notice verse 28. The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell his dream. And he that hath my word... Let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words, every one, from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, He saith. These are people that stand and say they speak for the Lord. And the Lord says, not all of them. Not all of them. Verse 32, Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. Yet I sent them not nor commanded them, therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. Peter says there were false prophets. They prophesied in the name of the Lord, but they actually did not speak for God, even though they say that they do. You see, speaking for God is a serious issue because the Bible is the biggest stadium that you could ever play in. It goes on and it says in verse 1, there shall be false teachers. So there were false prophets, but there shall be, in the New Testament era, False teachers. Why? Because the prophecy of the Scripture is complete. There's no more new prophecy coming. All that's left to be done is to teach the written prophecy. So there were false prophets. Now there are false teachers. And notice that it says, false teachers among you. There shall be false teachers among you. So we're not talking about false teachers out in crazy world. We're talking about false teachers right here. 
among the bodies of true born-again Christians. So Paul writes to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, and he warns them in verses 29 and 30, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you. They're going to enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Oh, and also, verse 30, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So he warns that there will be some that will enter into your congregation, and there will be others that will come up out of your congregation, and you need to be aware of them. Paul said, I'm going to leave, and you guys are in charge, and you need to watch for this, because this is the way the devil will attack. It's satanic. Don't kid yourself. It's profane. What the devil does is he takes that which is holy, the word of God, and he makes it profane. So what you need is what Ezekiel talked about in Ezekiel 44 and verse 23. You need people, it says, and they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. And that's what we're going to address today. So the title of the message, kind of a long introduction, is The Satanic Nature of False Teachers. So, man, we've seen a mouthful already, but let's pray and let's get into these next couple of verses. Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, I just pray, like King Solomon of old, that you would give us wisdom. We desperately need to hear from you, and we need to be able to discern and understand. The devil is subtle. He is sneaky. And frequently, Lord, ourselves, we can't possibly figure it out. But by your Holy Spirit, through the direction of your Holy Word, we truly can. So I pray that you would shine your light on that which is dark and help us to see. And as a result, that we would hear your voice and obey. Thank you for the light of the warning of the Scripture. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen. Two main points to study today. The first couple of verses I'm going to give at this subject. False teaching brings marginalization. It's a big word. Marginalization. Notice with me, I'm going to go ahead and just read. We're only going to look at three verses today. I'll start again at verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and brought upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways. We're going to have a little vocab lesson today. By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. It says that these guys are going to bring in damnable heresies. Okay? Marginalization. Okay, so we've seen before this idea of a heresy, right? This is a false teaching. And it's a false teaching that the result of which is people are divided. There are factions. And I know that because if you just look up the word heresies and you look at the way that the word is translated heresy, it is translated four times as heresy or heresies. And it's translated five times as the word sect. 
splinter group. Okay? So the heresy is a false teaching that causes people to divide. See? So the purpose is to marginalize true believers and to make them of no effect. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 3 and 4. If any man teach otherwise, other than what Paul is teaching, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine, which is according to godliness. The word doctrine literally just means teaching. He's proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words. Notice, what is the result of these false teachings? Whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings. We've seen a lot of that lately in our body. So how do false teachers work? Well, they, they work through subtlety. That's how they work. False teachers will work through subtlety. It says that they will privily. That's an easy word to understand. It's privately, secretly. Privily means secretly. So what you're going to find in some of the false teaching groups, secret societies, secret organizations, secret meetings, Of course these people don't reveal who they really are. They're sneaky. They're subversive. Oh, while looking very respectable. Because there are among us. And so, honestly, it can be very confusing. How can you tell the difference? Well, there's only one way. We'll get to that. It goes on in verse 1 and it says, even denying the Lord that bought them. And I just want to point out to you, this is an interesting phrase. Listen, denying the Lord that bought them. So in your notes I put this, one damnable heresy that emphasizes the secret things of God is Calvinism. It's Calvinism. And we've talked about that off and on only because the scriptures have, that we have gone through keep pointing out over and over again how this is a false teaching. The idea of Calvinism, if you're not familiar, is the idea of uh, God has predestined before the beginning of the world who will be saved and who will not. And there's, a, there's an acronym called TULIP where the T and the U and the L and the I and the P all stand for different statements. And each of those things represent a doctrinal heresy. Okay, well, one of them, the L, stands for limited atonement. The idea is that Jesus Christ did not die for all of us. Jesus Christ only died for the elect. That's the teaching. He only died for the people who will get saved, that none of his blood was shed in vain. That's what they want to teach. Well, if that's the case, they're going to have an awful hard time with a verse that says there are people in the world who deny the Lord that bought them. I mean, this thing blows the lid off of limited atonement, doesn't it? It's ridiculous. And and by the way, all of the things that are so impossible to understand in the false logic of Calvinists and Calvinism Reformed theology, they will ascribe to, oh, those are the secret things of God. Just talk to them a little bit. Those are the secret things, see? Interesting. Privily shall bring in damnable heresies. Somebody's denying the Lord that bought them. Limited atonement is not true. The I in the tulip stands for irresistible grace. 
That means when God puts his grace on you to draw you to salvation, you couldn't possibly resist it even if you wanted to because ultimately you don't really have free will. God predetermined everything. That's what they teach. Well, somebody here is resisting the grace of God. God bought them and they're saying no thanks, right? I mean, it is just as clear as it possibly can be. Look in 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 2. Look, I mean, this just is just as obvious as it can be. It says, He, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. Oh, not just ours, Christians, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ died to purchase the salvation of every man, woman, boy, and girl on the face of the planet. Amen? Whether you appropriate it to you is dependent upon your free will to receive it. I can say I purchase for you this gift and offer it to you, and you can stand there and look at me and never receive it. It never becomes yours. Christ died for everybody, but a lot of people deny it. They deny it. So that means that Jesus died for all the Muslims. He died for all the Buddhists. He died for all the Hindus, all the atheists, all the religious and non-religious of the world. And most of the people in the world deny the Lord that bought them. And they teach others that way. And we'll see in a second how many others deny the Lord altogether, or at least his all-sufficient blood atonement, because they think that you need to do some series of good works to earn your way into heaven. And boy, if there was ever a heresy that damned people to hell, that looks good, is the idea that you can do something good enough to make it into heaven. I mean, just go out and interview your friends on the job and ask them, hey, how do you think somebody gets to heaven? And eight or nine of ten of them will probably say, well, you know, if you live a good life and don't hurt anybody. That's basically what people think. That's a damnable heresy. So what God's trying to say to us here is that false teaching results in, number one, Swift judgment of the false. Swift judgment. It says they will bring upon themselves swift destruction. Now that does not mean that as soon as they teach the false teaching, boom, they get destroyed. That would be kind of (laughs) cool. Well, unless that was me or you. But if that were the case, it immediately came as soon as you did it, well, there'd be a lot less false teaching. There'd also be a lot less people. So swift destruction does not mean swiftly upon doing it. It means that when it comes, it will come in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. It will come like a thief in the night. It's going to come, when it comes, it's going to come swiftly. In fact, if you look down in verse number 3 at the end, talking about their judgment, it said, whose judgment, notice, now of a long time, it's been a long time since they have been judged, but eventually it won't linger. Eventually it won't sleep. It will come swiftly. And that's what we see. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 10, you could glance at, it'll come like a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, it will come like a thief in the night. And then it's compared to a woman with travail, with child. 
And so, you know, the woman is impregnated and it lasts about nine months. But when the baby comes, boy, when it hits, boy, it's time, it's time. <laughs> so it comes swiftly when it comes. But hey, it's been building for a while, right? That's what he means. And we will see other examples of that when we get together next time. And you can glance at verses 4 and 5 and 6 where it talks about angels that sinned and in the days of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. And we're going to see examples of how, yes, it lingered for a while, but boy, when it came, it came. So false teaching results in swift judgment of the false. And number two, it results in poor judgment of the true. Because it says in verse number two, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. That's poor judgment. It's poor judgment to think that the people who stand for the truth are really false. To speak evil of those who stand for the truth, that's poor judgment. That's marginalization. It's marginalizing the true against the majority. Your example is the Apostle Paul. He was being judged before the governor, Felix, and in Acts chapter 24, starting in verse 13. Paul's defending himself. He says, Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers. What's this heresy Paul, Paul believes? Believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Paul's called a heretic because he's a Bible believer. Paul believes everything that was written in the law and everything that was written in the prophets. And the people who don't like it are getting a majority of people together and accusing Paul and saying, he's a heretic. Well, Paul's the only guy that's right. But they marginalized him. They call the way of truth and they call it evil, right? He's a Bible believer, and Bible believers today will be called heretics. You believe the Bible, you'll be called a heretic. What they do is they flip the script. They accuse the true to be false. And they confuse everybody. And it gets confusing. And so a lot of nice people just say, I'm checking out. This is too weird. This is just too messed up. My brain hurts. I don't want to mess with this. I'm out. I'm not against God or nothing. I just can't stand it. But what they need to remember is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, right? God is not the author of confusion. God's not in that mess. Don't be lazy. Don't put your head in the sand. Man, let's do the work. Let's discern this thing because God died to give us the ability to understand. It goes on and it says, Many shall follow their pernicious ways. When's the last time you used that in conversation? Pernicious. Destructive is what it means. Many shall follow their destructive ways. Their ways cause destruction. Well, that's Matthew 7, 13 to 15. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to pernition, destruction. And many, see that? There be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Oh, what's the context? Verse 15, beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. So the many, many, the broad way has most people, the majority of people are on the broad way. The minority of people are on the straight or narrow way. 
And so many shall follow their pernicious ways. Many. If you were to number just the Roman Catholics and the Muslims of this world today, you'd be in excess of 2 billion people. You know that the majority was wrong in Noah's day? You know the majority was wrong in Sodom and Gomorrah? You know the majority was wrong in Jesus Christ's day? And you know the majority is wrong today. In the, 19, or in the 1880s, two men, Brooke Foss Westcott and John Fenton Anthony Hort, Westcott and Hort, British scholars, members of secret societies, several, came up with their own Greek text of the New Testament, which ultimately became the source text for all new Bible versions that are out there. And so in many places in the new versions, Jesus Christ is stripped of his deity. He's not referred to as Lord or as the Lord Jesus Christ with the same frequency and consistency as he is in the King James Version of the Bible. The references are too many to list for you, and it's not the point of today's lesson. But I encourage you to check it out. Because what happened is, what they're doing, subtly, through the minor changes, in every few years, getting a new Bible, listen, we'll explain a little bit later, they're denying the Lord that bought them. You know who's a minority these days? You are. If you're a conservative, King James Bible-believing Christian, you're considered a heretic. You're a minority. And like Paul, because you believe all the Bible, understood properly, they think you're crazy. And the issue of manuscript evidence of Bibles, do you realize that the term they always use is, well, the majority of Christian scholars agree. Okay, <laughs> well, that's enough reason to be skeptical, isn't it? So people who believe that God has preserved one line of text for one Bible are marginalized. They're called false teachers on the subject of the preservation of the Scripture, and the truth is evil spoken of. That's what we see. You're marginalized. Uh, the second point in your study, false teaching brings manipulation. Verse number three, it brings manipulation. It says that they will make merchandise of you. Isn't that, isn't that descriptive? They want to make merchandise of you. They want to turn a profit off of you. They want to get rich off of your gullibility. Don't be that gullible. That's manipulation. That's evil. That's what that is. So before we saw how do they work, they work through subtlety. Now why do they work? Why do the false teachers work this way? Because of their covetousness. Because of their covetousness, right? We saw 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3 earlier where it talks about if any man teach otherwise. Okay, go down to verse number 5 of 1 Timothy 6 where it says, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. Notice, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. So anybody who analyzes life and says, well, hey, we got a lot of stuff, therefore we must be right. We got a lot of money, we must be godly. 
See how God is blessing me? Look at all that I have. Supposing that gain equals godliness. That's a heresy. That's a damnable heresy. And it's because of their covetousness. 1 Timothy 6 continues. Go down to verse number 9. But they that will be rich... Oh, you don't have to be rich to wish you were, right? I lived in one of the poorest countries in the world for 14 years. They didn't have much, but boy, did they wish they were. They that will be rich, it says, fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money. It's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of it which while some coveted after, there you have it, they've erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 11, again, speaking of people who teach false, falsely and cause divisions, it says, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not. Why? For filthy lucre's sake. They want to make money off of you guys. Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 5 says, covetousness, it's idolatry. It's idolatry. You've set up idols in your heart. When you seek after anything else that puts it between you and God, that thing is an idol to you. Oh, we don't bow down to statues and totem poles and all that sort of thing anymore like they did in other places in other days. We just have to keep up with the latest technology. We just have to buy the latest recreational equipment. We have to fill in the blank your favorite thing that you covet after and pursue with all your heart rather than pursuing the Lord with all your heart. If that is true of you, you are covetous. You are idolatrous in that point. You just want, hey, y'all want some good advice for life? Just, just some good advice? About 10 of you do. Okay. For the ten of you, the others, you know, take, you listen if you want. If it doesn't make sense, there's a buck in it. Just think about that for a while. If something's going on and it just doesn't make sense, it probably makes dollars. It probably makes dollars. So, I wanted to lay out for you. I searched a website and I found a website called therichest.com and I, I found a list of the 10 richest religions in the world. We'll do like Letterman's top 10. You ready? Can, can, you, can you guess? Can you wonder? Like, I wonder, who, I wonder who's at the top. Okay. Number 10, Scientology. Scientology. I don't have the figures for you because it's almost impossible with these organizations to get figures. Okay. I don't know if any of you have been watching the documentaries that have been on television with Leah Remini, who was a Scientologist and is now ex fascinating. I've been watching them all. I started following her on Twitter. It's just amazing, the stuff. I mean, Scientology is a secret society, by the way, and it is all based on doing good works, okay, devoid of the gospel. Uh, number nine, ready? Freemasonry. Freemasonry. So the Masons... Uh, the Daughters of the Eastern Star. Uh, you say, well, that's not a religion. Oh, really? Uh, it's a secret society that says if you do good in your life, you'll achieve, and ultimately, some God level. 
uh, Freemasonry is ridiculously wealthy and influential amongst, in the, in the, in the back doors of almost every government in this, in this world. Uh, number eight, Protestantism. Now, Protestantism, I'm going to hold as a potential exception to the rule. But let me just say for the record, historically, Baptists have never been Protestants. And so there are varied beliefs that come out of Protestant churches. Some of them are actually good. Some of them not so good. So we'll kind of keep that as a side note. But there's a ton of them, so they're number eight. Number seven, you might not call its own religion, but it was on this list, televangelism. Televangelism. That's a big moneymaker. And typically what you have on the TV evangelist shows, right, are charismatic preachers, right, who are filthy rich, multi-multi-millionaires. And what do they teach? Well, most of them would teach at a minimum that you can lose your salvation, right? Number six, Episcopalians. Episcopalians is an American version of a branch of the Church of England. Very, very wealthy. They also would believe in good works for salvation. Anglicans. Anglicans, number five. Anglicans would also be a branch of the Church of England in the United States. Very sacramental church. Believe in sacraments and good works. Uh, fifth richest religion in the world. Number four, big secret society, Mormons. Mormon, a lot of money in the Mormon church, right? Secrets galore. You don't have a clue what they really think and believe unless you're deep into the organization. Good works. That's what they're all about. Uh, number three, this shouldn't surprise you, Judaism. Judaism. Because the Jews, even of the Old Testament, have actually a God-given ability to make wealth. And if it weren't for that ability, by the way, they probably would have ceased to exist as a population. But God has preserved them. But look, Jewish people all over the world are, are very, very wealthy people very frequently. And uh, their system of religion today is all based on good works. It's a false gospel. Uh, number two. We're down to the last two. You ready? Islam. Now, the countries that are influenced the most by Islam are, in some cases, very, very poor countries. But they also include some of the very richest countries because they sit on top of all of the oil production in this planet. And so some of the richest people in the world are Muslims and the nations, and they invest ridiculous amounts of money as a result. Good works. It's all about good works. A true Muslim believes that they got to live right. That's what they believe. And number one, no big surprise, right? Roman Catholicism. Number two isn't even close. There is nothing that compares with the Vatican State and the Roman Catholic Church. The phenomenal, you could never possibly delve the depths of the wealth that is just in the Vatican Museum in artwork. You could not possibly exhaust the wealth resources of the properties that the Roman Catholic Church owns. I mean, this is the wealthiest corporation without a close second on the face of the planet. Salvation is all about keeping the sacraments and living your life right. Do good works. Listen, y'all, there's a lot of money in religion. A lot of money in it. There's a lot of money in Bibles, by the way. The world's best-selling book ever, continually, year after year, is the Bible. 
shouldn't surprise you. There's somebody always coming up with a new Bible. If it doesn't make sense, there's a buck in it. So this is a characteristic of Laodicea. Laodicea is the time in which we live, described from Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17, where the people of Laodicea, which typically represent the day and time in which we live in the last days before the rapture of the church, as being rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Now, you parents, you love your children and you sacrifice for your children and you make sure they get a good education and you make sure that they have opportunities to play all the sports and they develop emotionally and physically and hopefully spiritually and all these things. Why? Because you ultimately want them to achieve, you may not say this out loud, but you want them to achieve the American dream. And the American dream, friends, is to be rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Isn't that right? But you've got to be careful of that. It's a characteristic of Laodicea. Now listen, this is much more than just being a wealthy Western Hemisphere nation in the 21st century. We lucked out we are born in the right country. It's much more than that. Because the modern church in the last days before the second coming of Jesus Christ is covetous. It's idolatrous. It's full of false teachers. Why? Because there's a market for it. Because the people in the churches are happy to flock to that sort of thing. They want to hear what they want to hear. They don't want to hear what they don't want to hear. So typically, not exclusively, typically the super mega churches don't talk a lot about sin and righteousness and judgment. They talk about a sanitized Christian version of human philosophy and just self-help. Be happy. Think positive. Do good. Live your best life now. That's what they say. And it's working for them. (laughs) They're rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing. Again, not exclusively. Some characteristics that the Bible gives us for these last days, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And we've looked at this many times, and you'll see it pop up. In the last days, perilous times shall come. And it gives this list of characteristics. Go on down to verses 3, 4, and 5. And where it says, ultimately, that men shall be lovers of themselves, of pleasures, more than they are lovers of God. That's what it says. That's kind of the day in which we live. So how are we supposed to respond to that? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. We're to preach the word. Amen? We're to be instant, in season, out of season, which includes some negative thinking. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort, encourage, right, with all long-suffering. Oh, and teaching, doctrine. Why? Because the time will come, and has come, when they will not endure sound doctrine. But what are they going to do? They're going to, after their own lusts, heap to themselves teachers, false teachers, having itching ears, scratch me where I itch, and they'll turn their ears away from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. So listen, man, people aren't stupid. The modern capitalist understands, and voila, we have false teachers galore because they are meeting a niche market. Christians, covetous Christians, who want to hear what they want to hear. 
and their covetousness drives them to lie so they can make a buck. They will make merchandise of you. Can you hear the word of the Lord? Verse 3, with feigned words. That's, that means they're lying. Feigned words. Real quick survey. A lot of verses in your notes. John 8, 44. The devil is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus Christ warns us in Matthew 24 and other places. Verses 4 and 5, he tells his disciples, Hey, don't be deceived. Be careful. There's people who want to lie to you. There's people that want to deceive you. Don't be deceived, right? Titus chapter 3 and verse 3 tells us that deception, having been deceived, that's a characteristic of the old man. That's a characteristic of a guy who's lost. Saved people should grow past the level of being deceived anymore. We don't have to be deceived anymore. Galatians 6 and verse 7, be not deceived, right? Because God will eventually, swiftly, reward all of us, rightly. And, you know, Romans 16, verse 18, we have to mark people who cause divisions. And it says, with good words and fair speeches, they deceive the hearts of the simple. And when we dealt with some of that stuff some weeks ago here, we talked about how what could possibly be more simple than children and to deceive the hearts of the simple deals with deceiving children well spiritually speaking you could be 45 years old and a new believer in Jesus Christ and you are a child in the Lord and if you have childlike understanding you are susceptible to the possibility of deception but Psalm 19 verse 7 says the law of the Lord is perfect Converting the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You don't have to be simple anymore. Stick with the law of the Lord. In Ephesians 4, we looked at earlier, verse 11 and 15, I skipped over verse 14. False teachers, they lie in wait to deceive. They deceive who? Children, young believers with cunning craftiness. They, they, that's why you need to grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. How are they going to deceive you? With every wind that blows of doctrine, which is teaching, false teaching. You see that? So understand this. What have we seen? Man, this is just a few verses packed with information. So false teachers are among us. They act secretly. They cause divisions. They deny the Lord. Their way is destructive. They have a majority following so that true believers are thought of as false. They're covetous and they serve themselves, not you. So beware of false prophets. How can you spot them? Because if they're among us and they look good, you might say, you look okay. <laughs> You're among us. How can we know? Well, be smart. Don't just believe me. Don't believe anybody. Right? John tells us in 1 John 4, in verse 1, test the spirits. Don't just believe them. Test them. Put them to the test. 1 Corinthians 11, and verse 19, 
He says, hey, there has to be heresy among you. Why? Because it's a test to see who is approved. Because a man who is approved will be made manifest in the midst of a sea where there are rumbling waters of false teaching. So test the spirits and show yourself approved. Well, how can you show yourself approved? Of course, 2 Timothy 2.15. Study the Bible to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Listen, you can heresy proof yourself and your family by showing yourself approved by studying the scriptures by understanding them in context by going back and testing the spirits by seeing what god actually said don't just believe a story that sounds good don't let that tickle your ear don't just follow these things that somebody says that you're like well i don't know he's a good guy sounded okay go back to the word otherwise You're in jeopardy. You're in jeopardy. They say the United States Secret Service is the one that kind of deals with counterfeit currency. And the way that people discern whether a bill is counterfeit instead of real is they spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours studying the true bills. And once you get a feel, you understand what real money is looks and feels and smells like and every detail of the real you don't have to study how all the counterfeits might come out once a once a fake passes through you're like what no that's not right there's just something wrong about that one and that's what you should do with the word of god become an expert on the true and when something fake pops in you're like wait a minute wait a minute that doesn't feel and smell and sound like the real i've spent too much time with the real That's how you can heresy-proof yourself and your family. People that do that, they'll be judged. Whose judgment, oh, now of a long time, yes, lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. That's why in James chapter 3, in verse 1, it says, Be not many masters, meaning teachers, because teachers will receive the greater condemnation Uh, by the way that shouldn't scare you and say well i ain't doing that i ain't studying i ain't teaching because if you do study accurately and god gave his life and spirit and word so you can and you do teach accurately well in first timothy 5 it says you're worthy of double honor and so whatever your capacity is however god has you man just be faithful to the word of god and you'll be fine and I just put it in your notes, you know, 1 Peter 5, 1 talks about elders over the flock are given the duty to feed and to teach and to care for. But if you don't find yourself yet being an elder, you're still a younger. Well, verse 5 of 1 Peter 5 is for you, and it says if you're younger, just submit. Learn. Let those who are elder teach you so that you can then get to the point where you're capable. God wants every person on the planet to be saved and he wants every saved person to grow and there is an enemy and he's going to try and stop you and if you feel the pressure today of that he's trying to stop you now well maybe that's a good thing maybe that means that you're really growing because the closer you get to god 
the closer you get to the devil. So let's rejoice in that, but let's also analyze ourselves and determine what would God have me to do as a result of what he said today. Let's pray together. And Heavenly Father, I just want to come to you and thank you for the revelation of the truth. It's not always what we want to hear, but boy, without it, we could stumble right into some mess. And so we thank you for that. And Lord, I want to pray, first and foremost, if there's anybody in this room who is not 100% sure that if their life were to end today, they'd have a home in heaven, that today would be the day that they would just surrender all to you. There's no magic words. If they would just cry out to you and say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Man, come into my heart and my life. Forgive me of my sins and give me the gift of eternal life. You have said you will save those people. You will give them a new heart and a new spirit. You will take away their sin and you will give them a guaranteed home in heaven. Lord, I pray that somebody would do that right now. And Lord, for the rest of us, we know that we've known you, but maybe we've let our growth be stunted. Maybe we've been covetous. Maybe we have set aside your word and we've not been faithful reading and studying it. Maybe we've not been faithful serving and being a part of the body because the truth is, without the body, we can't really understand the Bible properly. We, we experience it all together, which then gives the sense as your spirit teaches us. And so, Man, there's got to be people here who know that what they need to do is repent of whatever they're in and get plugged back in so that they can continue to grow and they're not susceptible to the deceit that is floating around. Thank you for the warning. Thank you for your Holy Spirit and your holy word and the truth that it gives us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would purify our hearts and we would faithfully hear and faithfully follow. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. We have one last song of